Hello, Okashina, Anime, Friends, Sabrina, Dawn, Kawaii, Kawaii. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> yeah, no, that that ain't gonna that ain't gonna fly. I, I don't know what to say. Uh, let's see how you do it this week, huh? Are you ready to go? It. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Okashina Podcast with your host, Sabrina Ray, not me, and Don Munson. That's me. I'm so happy to be joining you as we discuss episodes three and four of Keep Your Hands Off Izoken. Nice. That wasn't bad, Don. I'm glad I let you try it this week because um, I was very low energy. Uh, it's true. <laughs> we need to put a B in your bonnet or something. <laughs> yes, please. Actually, my bonnet right now is I've got I've got um, rabbit ears on because I'm assembling my Halloween costume. For oh, this year. Haru! I don't even know if we're gonna get to trick or treat. I don't know what's going on. Like our town has said, like you can trick or treat, but they haven't given us any guidelines, and there's no events. Like there's no like places to go or things to do. It's like we can just go door to door and hope that people like have made precautions and like i don't know i feel weird going up to people's doorbells and ringing them randomly oh yeah i mean i read and this is not a joke that the solution from the candy industry is that you literally throw candy at passing children uh in order to provide them this is this again is not a joke this was the recommendation you can always throw the candy at the children well unless unless dr fauci comes out and is like throw candy at children I, I don't really know what to make of it, to be honest with you. Like, we haven't done anything for our boys to prep. We're going camping next weekend, so we're not going to be spending any time in that context thinking about Halloween. And, like, around here, there are is normally a tremendous amount of candy to be scored at neighborhood homes. Yes. But for some reason, our little um, courtyard is an absolute candy desert. Nobody ever comes in, even when we leave the gate open. Um, We've left huge bowls of candy out right in front of our door. Basically, you can just run up and grab huge handfuls of it, and no one ever does. We often come back, and then there's just as much candy as we left with. So I'm not at all objecting to the idea that Halloween is just quietly and sadly canceled this year. Yeah, that's possible. I I feel like we're, we're a big Halloween family, and last year... I not only did like three trick or treats with my daughter, like one event, like one like Halloween parade and trick or treating in the afternoon to late to 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 like dusk and then again the nighttime trick or treating with her friends in our neighborhood. And it was raining and it was pretty miserable. She went as um Espeon from Pokémon, that's one of the Eevee evolution evolutions like the Eevee evolutions uh, of that particular character, the one that has the psychic powers. Uh, she was this like beautiful purple foxy creature. And I went as like random trainer. I wore like little short shorts and I made like a bad cardboard cutout and put it on my on my baseball cap. So it looked like I had a Pokeball <laughs> where like whatever team name was supposed to be. And... Um, 
yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I went to two different parties as well. And I worked at a haunted car wash. Like, I was... <laughs> you got me there. What is a haunted car wash? At the mall, I, I was randomly on Facebook and one of my friends reached out and was like, hey, does anyone want to be a scare actor? We can pay you some money. You can come and work at our haunted car wash. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I've always wanted to try that. Like, I've, I've done news stories on... Um, on on haunted attractions and like gotten behind the scenes tours of it and met all the crazy people and every time <laughs> i do those i'm like you know what i'm crazy i should be doing this i love to get in with people and it turns out that there's this this car wash and they just fill it with like ghouls and stuff so like you go to get your car washed and it starts off and i just dump a bucket of blood on your windshield <laughs> <laughs> and then you go through like the automated car wash and while your car is sort of loading and like going in there we like flashlights and play music and like um i i was wearing like a clown mask and i did like this goofy like pennywise like dance and like how incredibly oh, suburban yeah very much right <laughs> it was it was neat though and it was there was not a lot of people <laughs> not, a, not a lot of people came to it but there was one family and the mother is the wife of a famous nfl player who i could not name <laughs> even <laughs> under torture um but suffice to say she and her brood of like four children and brother-in-law and his wife and their infant baby went through the car wash like six times in a row. I'm not even joking. I'm not even exaggerating. No, I believe you. They went through six times in a row and the kids were like constantly trying to like be cooler or like not scared. They they were trying to like play it cool, you know? Mm -hmm. And they came up to me afterward and they were like, you weren't scary, but you were funny. (laughs) I guess. And we like that. I, I guess that works. And the wife gave us like a $50 tip, like individually. I was like, what the fun? That's amazing. Yeah. that. Uh, and I had just lost my job that year. <laughs> Man, that's, a, that's an experience. Yeah, it was something. It was something all right. <laughs> anyway, so... I'm big into Halloween. I just watched them um, on Netflix. They released the the like spiritual sequel, haha, to The Haunting of Hill House. It's called The Haunting of Bly Manor, and I highly recommend it. Uh, it also it it has that similar vibe where for some part of the show you're looking for ghosts hidden in the backgrounds of the of the scenes. Like there's just like ghosts standing around and sometimes there'll be like a flash of lightning and you'll see like a ghost in the corner of your eye and you'll like, instead of being scared, you'll sort of be like, oh, there it is. I saw it. It's like finding Waldo. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've never really been into the horror motif, the the jump scare or any sort of scare. Like it just hasn't been my my cup of tea, if you will. But I can appreciate that other people enjoy it. Yeah. Well. If that's not true, if that doesn't float your boat, I also watched Cobra Kai, which was like the the Karate Kid. Uh, it's almost it's forty years much later, a twenty years later, yeah, or something. It's yeah, it's forty years later, but it's they're like in their forties. Is it not? I mean, how much later is it? I I would say that they are 
they're in their they're in their middle age. I don't know if they're exactly fifty. So I have to just just as a in the point original of movie, they're like supposed to be like sixteen, right? When do you think the Karate Kid was made? Nineteen eighty four. Correct. Well done. That is closer to forty years than any other round integer of ten. Oh, multiple my, of ten. That's true. Wow. Um, yeah. So, uh, like, yeah, forty <laughs> years later, I guess. <laughs> oh man. Man, I can't believe we're like the same age. (laughs) Yeah. It's sad. (laughs) Well, now I think it's a tragedy. (laughs) No, um, very good. Very good show. It does all of the things that you want sort of like an updated version of the Karate Kid to do because they did an updated version with Will Smith's kid, Jaden, and um, Jackie Chan. That wasn't terrible. But also it wasn't exactly karate. I can tell you this. It, it was not memorable in that you, if you had pointed a gun at my head and say, tell me what the sequel to or the, the successor to the Karate Kid was, I could not have named any Jaden Smith vehicle. Yeah, well, I can't like I can't recall any single one thing that that movie did differently or right. But I remember it being perfectly passable as a Karate Kid movie. And... Um, it's a series without a lot of huge misses. I would say the the part three and the <laughs> and the next Karate Kid are probably not my favorite ones, but this is a very good update. It it allows the characters to be much older, facing middle age, facing their failures and successes, and and navigating like how to raise kids in this day and age uh, with the same or better values than they were taught, you know, like kind of adapting to like, I love the fact that Daniel LaRusso is a used car salesman who uses his like, uses this like sacred art that was passed on to him, but from Mr. Miyagi to sort of shill cars. Like each one comes with a free bonsai plant. Like it's so hacky. And, uh, and and the, the series is actually about the bad guy in the first movie, um, Johnny, who was the the star pupil of the Cobra Kai brand. Uh, the, the guy, the, you know, like the typical bad guys who wear black in any sports movie <laughs> or even Twister, the movie where they're like chasing tornadoes and there's like a an evil like tornado chasing outfit. <laughs> Good Lord. And they're all they're all dressed in black. Um, yeah, it's, it's both a good karate show. It's a good teenage show. It actually gets teenagers right. Um, in, it actually feels like it was written in this decade. Uh, you know, a lot of the times I'll watch something that's like supposedly about teenagers and they won't even have phones. They won't even be using them. I I can't remember what I was watching, but I was watching something that 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 also purported to be like by te- by like by like for this generation, and they just like basically told us that the teens were like one of the lines of dialogue was like she's really into Instagram, and yet in, during the movie she did not take one selfie, she did not post anything, like. There was nothing like built into the movie that actually told you that, like that actually showed you that she was interested. It was all just exposition. 
Hmm. Anyway, how are you doing? Is there anything else you want to discuss before we get into the episode? No, I would just follow up and point out that as a, I've been filling my time trying to. Uh, Did you say that again? <laughs> I've been trying to fill my time finishing out Inuyasha, which I never completed as a child or as a young adult, I guess. I don't know when it actually was released. Um, but after our discussion, I tracked it down and realized that I have subscription to Hulu where it's showing. So I've been uh, catching up a little bit on that old staple. I realized one of the things that I always really liked about it was they had basically like three soundtracks that they reuse quite frequently. What, do you find that comforting? I kind of do. Each one of them I like, and each one of them uh, I found is like, oh, is it? And, I sort of, and then, of course, you hear it at least four or five times during the course of any single episode. Yeah, yeah. So it's very stylized. You were, I think at one point we were talking about what really is nice about Eizouken is the showing, not telling. And I just listened to Inuyasha constantly tell me exactly what is going on and why these characters are interacting the way they're interacting. Like, it's very tortuous, actually, from that perspective. <laughs> yeah, I I think that a lot of times those particular, that particular brand of manga is, is just, it's so talkative. It's so overly talky. And that's... I, it's so weird that I have to bring up One Piece every episode, but it really does that right. <laughs> like, there's very little explaining in One Piece, which is super, super refreshing. Um, but yes, Azoken, let's get into it. Uh, so the first episode we're going to discuss is episode three, and it's called Let's Accomplish Something. Um, and it starts off, and the girls are outfitting their clubhouse with a uh, logo for the Azoken. It's the Japanese character for A, which is the first part of that word, Azoken, which just means mo- motion or moving, right? Sure. This episode is kind of about how like the artists are dreaming. <laughs> they have these these pie in the sky wishes and ideals for how they want this thing to look. They have these they have these images like I think whenever you start out doing any kind of project, you kind of have this like this dream of how you want it to eventually be. Just like how with Okashina Podcast Anime with Friends, I'm already like visualizing and play acting what our uh, panel at one of these big conventions is going to be like <laughs> with like live music, like me on the microphone doing the like little voices that I do over the music at the very beginning, like live and like introducing everybody, including uh, the creator of Beastars, Itagaki Paru, and our special surprise guest, Ikuhara Kunihiko. <laughs> like, I do this in the shower. I do it when I'm riding in the car. It's good practice for me. For um, when your dream is realized. Yeah, kind of. Like, I think I think I'm a bit of a dreamer in that sense that like I I often would interview myself. Whenever I start a new project, I would often like pretend to be a person from the media interviewing myself. And I would think about how I would answer questions about the project. And that would sort of help me like visualize where I wanted it to go. It, it sounds a little crazy, I guess, but they, they do this. They do a similar thing where they're already imagining their opening logo as like the a like the, the, the legs of the character walking as in like motion picture. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and I also liked the scene is set up very well because it starts with them dreaming and they've got these grandiose plans and, uh, you know, all they've 
all they're doing is just hanging this logo. They're not doing much of anything else. And then, of course, Kanamori shows up because the ones who are hanging it is Asakusa and Mizuzaki. And <laughs> when yeah. when Kanamori shows up, she's like, so what? Like, <laughs> you've just you've just hung that. We have a lot more work to do, um, which is sort of the theme of the whole episode. I think so, too. And I think that Kanamori is is like it's like she's reality that, and she literally punches through a wall. But I, I kind of see her like reality, just punching through their dreams <laughs> at every, at every time, every time they start to like drift away or escape into their like, like la la land. She just comes in with these hard punches and just knocks them back into reality. Sure, it's the cold hard truths, but she doesn't do it rudely. She is just she is just reality rearing its impending head. Yes, you know, she keeps that's... them. She forces them to stay mm-hmm. grounded. She doesn't want to hurt their feelings. She's just like this is what it is. And there were so many scenes. It bleeds over into the next episode as well, where she's like, "Well, if you plan this out and you determine how much time it's going to take." then we will have to work 48 hours a day between now and our target. Uh, and she's like, that's that's not humanly possible. So what are we going to have to do? Where can we cut corners? Yeah. So in many ways, Asakusa is not her main target. I mean, in this first episode, it's definitely Asakusa who uh, volunteers to... They're, they're trying to fix up the place. That she's She's like determined, like... Their three hundred dollars is that they earned from the footage of Asakusa's fall has fully gone into repairs, and they even have a moment of silence for their spent money, which is now just a couple, you know, yen in a bag. I did and, like uh, the way that that went, and everybody's praying for a certain outcome, and yes, know, bidding the money goodbye so that it will bring more to the gates. That was. But uh, Asakusa's got her head in the clouds. Literally, she's if she's not chasing butterflies. <laughs> Or chasing raccoons and singing the Pompoko song from the Studio Ghibli movie of the same name. Or she's not, uh, she's she's literally like spraying graffiti while wearing a rusted bucket on her head, pretending that she's on a space shuttle. Kanamori sums her up in a really succinct way, uh, where she says that basically she doesn't really think about how hard the work she's volunteering to do is. She only sees what she's interested in herself, which is in this case playing with a drill or in the case. And she even uses an example of like when students in Japan have to clean their own school, which is something that they really have to do uh, when it comes time for them to do the job. Uh, she describes the socks as the type who goes in and grabs the bo- the broom first, not because she's motivated to clean, but because she just wants to play with the coolest looking broom. Yeah. I and I thought that, that was a, a great way to really zero in on the character. And, and she proves it again by not actually doing any work <laughs> and then being forced to go up on the roof with Mizusaki to finish the repairs of the roof at the very least, because it, it is a real problem. It's rained several times in the series, right? Or it's at least rained once heavily. So if they are doing all of this delicate work underneath they could get rain damage and lose everything. So Kanamori's like insistence that this be done makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's practicality writ large. I also found it interesting that, you know, even the the whole scene when they clamber up onto the roof and they are 
trying to lock everything down. And uh, Kanamori is the one who's doing some sort of repairs on the desks uh, down in the in the main part of the building. Like, of course, it's those two who end up on the roof. Of course, it's the ones with their heads in the clouds that are up there in the sky and then getting hailed yes. on. It's it's just perfect. Yes, and I like that. I like how, and this isn't the first time it's happened, but how reality and that fantasy world sort of collide in they blend together often. So Kanamori gets sucked up into their fantasy and has to like, <laughs> it's not that she has to, it's more like she's just thrust into the role of the person who's rescuing them from the roof because their ladder falls when the hail starts to fall and they can't get off the roof and Mizusaki has to pee. And although Kanamori jumps into the fantasy and goes through airlocks and everything. And uh, as in the previous episode, she ends up pulling a lever and, and punching things into a, into a machine or telling a machine what to do. She still says like, we have a bladder emergency up top. Like it's still based on that reality. And there's a nice little blend where the, the fantasy and the reality collide. And I kind of like that. Yeah. You know, there's a hard sci-fi world and then there's that real-world dilemma of Mizusaki just having to pee. <laughs> right. I would have thought, just as an aside, that when you're getting hailed on, it kind of hurts. and Therefore, you really want down off the roof. Um, that would also lend some urgency. I would just be afraid of inclement weather in general. Like, the closer you are to the sky, the more likely you're to get hit by lightning when you're on a steel roof. <laughs> It does seem a remarkably unsteady building to house any sort of committee in, regardless of anything I would, else. You know what? It's weird that the school allows them to even do the repairs, honestly. Oh, yeah, it's an excellent point. Although I was, apropos of not this podcast, I was reading an article that apparently the building codes requirements in Japan uh, are very different. And it is one reason why they're able to do... Like they are able to absorb and you don't see the same sort of crazy property increases that they had at like the end of the 90s. Or um, you remember when like there was a time and you can find this article when the land under the Imperial Palace in Japan was worth more than the island of Manhattan from a property value standpoint. It was just absolutely insane um, the, the way the property Is that just because are. of scarcity or? I don't I think it was related to scarcity, although I don't remember how they resolved it, but it was absolutely infamous at the time. That like the the that you could you'd get a mortgage that your grandchildren would literally be paying off in terms of buying property in in uh, Tokyo. Wild. <laughs> but then but then so the the main point is now I I don't know what changed or if anything changed but the building codes are very different and I wonder if that is um, one of the ways in which they this is a plausible <laughs> scenario that they would have children going out um, and making <laughs> repairs on a dilapidated building. Possibly. So then that brings us to the crux of the episode. Well, I mean, I already talked about Kanamori busting through the wall, which was baller, which was also a waste of labor and resources, as she points out, because they got off the roof by sliding down a pipe, which not not probably the most Elegant. wisest uh, solution. But no, it was also extremely dangerous. <laughs> the, the crux of the episode is about the budget deliberation meeting. So... Uh, they've decided to announce their plan and try to go for a budget of $600, which is double what they had from the from the 
from the fall footage. Uh, before we get there, I just have to say the the reveal sure. of how they how they came to know about this particular <laughs> budgetary meeting. I'm absolutely shocked that you didn't jump in because I assumed this was your favorite character to hate or um, character that causes the most perplexing uh, response, which is the advisor shows up. Yeah, you kind of ex- described him in a way last week where I thought, oh, okay, well, he's just there to deliver these messages. <laughs> yeah, he is, he's literally a deus ex machina to just swoop in, provide it, and then vanish again. I mean, he doesn't even hang out in the building. He has no idea what they're doing. Literally not. No, he really doesn't. He just, he might be ordained by God. <laughs> I mean, it's very, the whole thing is extremely weird. One thing I really liked about this is, uh, is they, they then had, um, they didn't, they then had a big meeting and they're supposed to be ultra serious during this meeting. And, uh, basically it, it pits Mizusaki as the, as the artiste, you know? the person who wants to accomplish the pinnacle of her art against Kanamori's reality. And Mizusaki insists upon doing all hand animation. Uh, she insists upon all these things. And I think Kanamori at that time knows that she's not going to win the battle. But she also doesn't know what what they can do yet. This is where we start to understand that Mizusaki sees herself as, and and all animators as actors who not only perform uh, what you see on screen to better understand it, but their acting isn't just what people are doing. It's what planes are doing and cars are doing. Like everything that has motion and that's animated is, is acting in a way. It, it's really getting down to that word animation, whereby you... You bring to life those things that otherwise did not have it. That you, they are animated as opposed to uh, unmoving or, or solid or un, non-existent. And it is beautiful the way I think that the show demonstrates uh, the fire that Mizuzaki has to bring everything to life. That everything, you know, the angles at which you evaluate things are are beautiful and and amazing and the naturalness of even just falling down a a rock face has you know you need to make it believable you need to breathe life into it that's a good place to talk about this but what do you think of the animation style of Azo Ken itself because it it's something that i noticed especially during the scene when kanamori was called into action against uh when when they were on the roof and needed her help but the way the characters move in this show is a little bit strange. Every so often, they will suddenly become kind of wobbly, I would say, and their bodies will distort a little bit like rubber. Like there's sort of a, like a snap back to the way they move. Um, you see it a lot when they're sort of de- acting dejectedly. Or when they have to sort of snap into action, there'll be like a slight delay. And I feel like that's a very recent trend in anime that that is apparent here. But it's hard not to watch a show about animation and not notice the animation in the show that you are yourself watching. I mean, I, I think it's a deliberate choice. And I it's to me, it seems clear um, that any 
any movement like that that we see is going to be observed by the, the viewer and evaluated. And Sumito Awara knew that this was going to, that there would be an evaluation of this style. Like, you can't write an anime about anime and not have your viewers critically assess the anime that you're making. It's simply not going to happen. But I, I think there was an right. explanation there that they gave, which is that exaggerated motions appear more realistic and they they convey, similar to how you were saying before, it's a show, not tell. That the, um, I think particularly about the scene when uh, Kanamori crashed through the wall, that it seemed, you know, she's using her whole body as the weight, as the, the, the momentum, um, the mass to carry you through. And I remember thinking explicitly during that scene about the, the heaviness and the weight of her body. And, and that is something that I feel like the show, in fact, does do well, is to try to impart how that action is observed. And I unfortunately, you know, I don't have older versions of things to go back and compare it to where I imagine that, in fact, there was not as much exaggerated movement um, or exaggerated motion that we now see now. But of course, it is a very common theme that we see, um, especially when you're doing things like fighting styles or particularly um, uh, lots of action in a comedic sequence where you see people bouncing around like India rubber or and so the, the stylistic motions I I felt yeah, were yeah, just yeah. A, a tribute to the current style. No, I could see that too. And and I mean even things like the Naruto run, no one runs like that. <laughs> no one I mean, it's not common for people to run with their arms akimbo. Stretched behind them, yes. Stretched <laughs> behind them. And there's a sort of exaggerated elongation of form which suggests a stronger motion than just running with your arms like normally would do. There's there's a sense that 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 by having your arms out to the side that when they eventually come forward, there'll be more power or more, there'll be more motion carrying forward in the action that happens immediately afterward. It's a ninja kind of thing, right? When you watch it in Naruto, but uh, just as an animation form, it has a lot of suggestiveness. And, and so I think it's interesting that here, they've embraced sort of you know we were talking about your name and weathering with you very recently the two films of makoto shinkai that are very popular and um you said one thing that was like these could have been done as regular films without the animation aspect to them if you looked at the animated performance and then you looked at someone acting out that in in the real world with cameras. I wonder if you would still say that, you know, like weathering with you and your name are sort of closer to a one-to-one -one representation of a reality. Or if a lot of these smaller details about how things are animated are represented in those films as well. So one of the things that I thought was very interesting about um, your name is I felt that a lot of the cinematic magic if you will happened um with sort of the sort of camera cuts that we now see in sort of like action films or things like the camera spins around so the angle of the subject changes um that's yes. a way that we see now in 
non-animated film to add sort of interest and action to the shot. And that definitely is something we observe in the anime version. And you just, you don't see it the same sort of comedic motions of the characters um, in those films that you just referenced, or at least certainly not uh, your name. Uh, if you go back to Summer Wars, you did have a little bit of that, even with the the, the sort of non-digital world action that occurred. But the digital world action, it was, of course, uh, heightened because you had the, I forget the name of the the, the fighting rabbit uh, that was the, the the combat mode. That would be King Kazuma. Um, uh, but yeah, that, that character in my mind is one that... Um, you know, when when we bring it back to this, Izoken has is more animated about its characters in that way. It uses the tools of animation to bring life. Like I, when I think about Asakusa, I don't really think about a normal little girl. Like she's a a raging ball of energy that keeps bouncing back and forth. Uh, I feel like most of her motions seem exaggerated and less natural in their movements. Um, I I feel like she's unpredictable in the direction she's going to move and the the way she's going to take things, um, and I I assumed that that was you know an intentional character design and manifestation on the screen. Yeah, I I also see it as a bit more in even what you would call American cartoons, in that it's it's a much more. I don't want to use the word stylized again. <laughs> I feel like that word is a crutch. Well, but I it is. There is a, a style associated with it. Like, go back to some of our famous early American cartoons. And by early American, I'm, I'm thinking from our childhood. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of He-Man and the way in which He-Man would run. And it seems like they had the same uh, two-second clip that they would use whenever He-Man had transformed from... Uh, I don't even remember what his name was when he wasn't He-Man, but um, Charles. It was not Charles. Uh, but uh, well, I feel like we got to look that one up just to. But he would always Nathan. Be, he would be running at a forty-five degree angle to the ground and furiously pumping his arms, and that was the scene of He-Man running, and it is the same scene of He-Man running throughout whatever. Oh, well, you're almost episodes. describing the 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 super cheap Hanna Barbera style where they literally just have a single running animation for all of it and they just scroll the background behind them which happens here later once we've established what they're going to be doing you know they eventually land on um doing some some kind of sci-fi story about a schoolgirl fighting a tank when they're making their compromises in episode four one thing they have to come up with is like repeating the backgrounds which which immediately brought me back to Hanna-Barbera it immediately brought me back to uh, Tom and Jerry where the house was just a single like an endless series of like doors yep and mouse holes and tables doors the yeah the the, the little end table with the curved feet and they're always running out beneath that and oh yeah and of course um, by the way the he-man character is Prince Adam since Adam, uh, there you go. Yes. It wasn't Nathan. <laughs> it was not Nathan. I, I suppose it should be no surprise that it's Adam from an Adam and Eve standpoint. Um, but uh, the, the, what the what's so nice about the Azoken version here is that they go through painstaking effort to explain why um, we see these 
repeats of backgrounds, why we see these exaggerated shots, how these tricks are used to get more value for the animation that's already been done, and honestly, to 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 not cut corners, but to fill out the animation and make it more enjoyable for the viewer. You're tricking the viewer at the same time that you're providing them pleasure because you're trying to get more out of less because animation itself is so hard. Yeah, yeah it is. Hey there, I'm Marn and I've got a new podcast right here on the Orange Groves Network. Every other Thursday on Dead Letter Society, I'm going to invite a friend into my library of terror to discuss a piece of horror fiction. We'll tackle topics like, why does Stephen King like evil clowns so much? Why is Ikea so inherently scary? And why don't young adult publishers like the horror genre? You can even read along with us week to week and weigh in with your own opinions on the Orange Groves Discord. So check out Dead Letter Society, a horror book club podcast, on the Orange Groves Network website or your podcast provider of choice. Hey Jory, have you ever watched the anime called One Piece? Yeah, Joe. I watch for a podcast that we do. What? You know, we are watching One Piece. I started watching it so you could rewatch it, and then we talk about it sometimes. I, I have I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, we don't do it super frequently. Once a month at best. Did, did you forget? We analyze the story and discuss the show's themes, characters, compare it to other media, and how it provides an allegory for real-life politics and events. I, I must have forgotten what... Where can I listen to remind myself? You can listen at the Orange Groves Podcast Network or search for We Are Watching One Piece in your favorite podcast app. What's a podcast? So, moving on, they they start doing their thing, coming up with all these crazy ideas. Um, they use a machete instead of a Japanese sword because it has more impact. It's realistic for combat. And while they see it in, in regular films a lot, they haven't seen it used in anime in that way. So they're really thinking and then like they start asking, like, how does a how does a schoolgirl fight a tank? And she she ends up getting like a cable gun to help her zip around and there's low gravity. So she's able to jump really high. And, and uh, all this is sort of like just stuff that start coming together as they're designing characters. But as we'll see later in episode four, which we're going to discuss now, which is called hold that machete tight. A lot of those decisions, when you see the final product, you don't even think about them because you're just so, enraptured by the, the the tale being told by the animation there's not even a story they had to sacrifice the story there's no real dialogue or anything it's just this girl fighting this tank but so much of that story comes through in every decision they make between the cutting of the edits to the the way that they use the backgrounds to the way that they try to add 10 seconds here or there you know the um, the use of and, color, the lack of color, you know, what are they going to be able to do? Uh, yeah. And it also reminds you sort of that, like, what you don't, like, the things that you have to compromise on often become the things that uh, that your work is known for, even. It reminds me of Gainax, the animation studio that did uh, Gunbuster and 
Evangelion most famously. And Gunbuster, this a series that came before Evangelion, it famously ends on a near silent uh, black and white uh, final two episodes, I think. But the, the ending of that series is is quiet and it's in monochrome. And it's because they ran out of money. <laughs> but it has huge impact. And if they didn't tell you they ran out of money and you saw it years later without the context of, or the expectations that came with like going into it, you might think it was a stylistic choice made for artistic reasons. And I, I get the same sense here in the kind of stories that uh, the girls are making and in, in the compromises that they are making in their art. Yeah, that's it does seem apparent in that context that, you know, <laughs> Mizuzaki has a lot of dreams that she wants to be able to do. And she and um, Kanamori come to come to a head and have to argue many points here about, you know, are we going to be able to use um, digital painting styles and um, Mizuzaki is like, no, we're not going to do that. I'll just, I'll do it all myself. And Kanamori is like, you know, you've made lots of promises in the past and you haven't been able to deliver. So we're going to presume, we're going to proceed under the assumption that you simply won't be able to do it. Um, it was a very interesting uh, point. And I mean, it was what I liked about, or what I like about what they're doing with the characters is they're very mature, honestly. I mean, it's really hard to imagine children not getting way too worked up and, you know, Mizuzaki making some disastrous choices and Kanamori not having the wherewithal to be patient and just matter of fact about it as they right. go forward. But that's that's the, the behavior that they're modeling is actually behavior that I am happy my kids are seeing just because it's so, you know, the way that they resolve conflicts is... Uh, in a in a way that's respectful of the other parties involved and moves the project forward. Yeah. Yes, they're hot-headed. They're hot-headed and they have their little squabbles, but in the end, they're all working towards the goal of making the best thing they can. Every time Mizusaki or Asakusa bring up something that they want to do that's that is that values art over everything else, it adds value to the production overall, even if ultimately Kanamori has to shoot down or bring them back to earth on some level. And as this has gone on, they're they're all starting to sort of find ways to help each other, I thought, which was kind of a, a nice surprise, I guess, because there's, there's not a lot of tension there. And... It's not a show, it's a show that has tension because getting these things done is incredibly difficult on the timelines they give themselves. But on the other hand, it's also it's also a show that doesn't like force them to have tearful separations. Like the resolutions come because everybody wants to make something good. I mean, this may be the only place in which it divest itself from reality given you know the scope and challenge of the project they're they're doing something that in principle is fairly small and you know not remarkable but the the sheer effort required to do it is monumental and i mean the in episode four we you know, they, they pull an all-nighter 
at the school and like are yes. hiding from security guards so that they can finally get the the final cuts in and make sure that everything is going properly like it's it's a true dedication to the craft and of course you get the impression that their parents have no idea what they're doing and you know the advisor hasn't been seen since he mentioned there was a budgetary meeting and stroked his beard and wandered <laughs> off when i did a when i did a movie a documentary we were literally editing it and adding things to it and and uh trying to make things like like render and and work properly 20 minutes before it was about to premiere <laughs> to an entire room full of people including famous people who were interviewed in the movie about the rocky horror picture show so like literally they were pressing the blu-ray as <laughs> they ran it from like downtown new york or whatever to the place where we were to get it into the into the into the projector or whatever in time it was down to the wire and that's how these projects go sometimes so i i definitely feel the the pressure you know i um one of the things that I have done over the past 10 years, although I don't know that I would get a chance to do it this coming year, is go to the Sundance Film Festival. Yes. Uh, and it's very interesting because you do see some world premieres and sometimes those movies are fascinating uh, and sometimes they are pretty awful. There's a movie which out of uh, respect and also forgetfulness, I will not name, uh, that... I did not see, but uh, the, some of the people I went to with, uh, with, with did see. And uh, they, <laughs> it clearly was one of those movies where, I don't know, you know, Sundance is very good about promoting and supporting directors and giving them tools to nurture and grow. Um, but that doesn't mean that they often, that they always get to see the final cuts of films before they air at these world premieres. So at this world premiere, they showed it. This, the director showed their movie, and um, I get the impression that it may have undergone some changes between the last time somebody at the Sundance had greenlighted it and when it was actually shown, because the first question that the director, the first question that the <laughs> that the audience asked of the director was, why did you make that piece of shit? Um, <laughs> and uh, it seems like a very harsh question if you had not lived through the movie, which was um, bizarre, had gratuitous violence. And when I say gratuitous, um, I believe Jessica Alba was one of the stars. And at some point in it, there's a five minute scene where she's just getting the living crap kicked out of her. And she apparently got up and left. Um, it was misogynistic. It was um, offensive. It just was not a movie that was going to go on to do great things. Uh, and I've seen movies like that myself where I just I just had to question why, how this movie got to that point. And of course, these are the, the bad sort of signs. Like we see in, in Aizouken an actual success of this, right? We see all these people working very hard under tight deadlines to get a final product and the final product actually works really well like that is the crux of episode four we get to see this short presented in all its glory and the uh, it's fair to say that the entire it's weird i have no idea how realistic this budgetary meeting is and i'm kind of curious uh, because 
they've got they've got the sort of actual deciders sitting up at a table quizzing the the um oh the club members but- i loved i loved the student council they are formidable and the first time we see them they just they just give a swift and merciless death to the uh carbohydrates revolution yeah which is a proposed school club which wants to replace the ramen noodles in the school cafeteria with rice, which is an affront to everything I stand for. And they're going to do it via electromagnetic amoeba. <laughs> I was very curious about that. I couldn't even understand, were they replacing the noodles or were they mixing them together? Regardless, I, I was very supportive of the uh, student council's decision to revoke funding for that particular club. Uh, But what, you know, not only do you have the actual council there, but there's a huge crowd of people behind them having to be restrained. Um, That has to be fantasy. I mean, I'm sorry. I fully agree with you. Um, But I so I was just wondering how much of a reflection of reality is this? I don't expect a throng of of thousands. (laughs) You know, can I can I just say it reminds me of like the McCarthy trials? Oh, gosh. (laughs) I I was wondering like in the 50s when uh, Hollywood people would like sell each other out um, as communists uh, in order to save their own skin. And they would go on these lengthy trials and like accuse people of uh, of following Lenin or whatever. Uh, <laughs> Lenin, huh? For people who don't know what McCarthy trials <laughs> were. It's a good, uh, good history lesson to go and check that out. Uh, but... But, you know, all these people get to see the the display of the video. They manage, uh, you know, uh, Kanamori is able to bamboozle, if you will, uh, the the council into watching the video. And, yeah, I think one of the council members says, like, by even by allowing them to show it, you've pretty much greenlit the process. Well, don't forget, Kanamori tried her shit and they almost shut her down. They were pretty shrewd. And it was the socks are going off. (laughs) <laughs> just well about the purity of in, art in, in, yeah with 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 kansai dialect with her shirt weirdly pulled over up her head like she's doing a bit from tv she just lays into them and ends her like rant her accusatory 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 uh belligerent rant with the proof is in the pudding just watch our thing and that's that's where they kind of fall into the like first of all they must be kind of shocked because it's just a it's just an endless rant of weirdness but it's heartfelt yes and she has tears in her eyes and she just wants her movie to be seen and that gets through yeah and as you said yeah once they green light it there it goes and then you know it's transformative the audience is completely taken in and of course part of that you know is the this is where the magic of Azoken where the fantasy comes to life, right? That is really, to me, what, what happens in Izuken when when the, the characters become so invested in the story that the story overwhelms the reality of their existence and it, it intrudes. And so we get the 3D, you know, the tank actually comes through the screen and there's explosions and the wind is blowing. And, uh, you know, yes. it, it, was a, it was just an amazing scene and it was so heartfelt they were so excited to show their 
they're they're short um and it you know and everybody you, you can it's cathartic to them it's almost like I, i'm gonna say it's almost like sex you know they they climax with the release of their show and then they they don't you know they, they don't seem to celebrate really? in the same way <laughs> no i really i i understand that i took it to bridge too far you may edit that out but uh i won't <laughs> <laughs> but i kind of felt like at the end, they weren't even. They seemed just sort of like very zen about the fact that they had right. made if, it past this your, stage. In your metaphor, they're basically smoking. They're smoking a cigarette. a cigarette. Thank you. Yes, I see the hand motion, and that's what uh, triggered my mind. Yes, no one's supposed to be smoking anymore, but they're very, um, they're very sated. They're very satiated at the end of that. It it was almost like it was not. Um, they didn't like high five at the end. No, actually, I have a different take on that. Um, it's not that they're just satisfied. It's that they aren't satisfied, which is what's so... That is that is what really seals the deal on them and makes, make, like, cements them as the real deal. Like, it, you know, look at the band Green Day. Those three boys, they, they were, like, 16 when they started the band. Okay, so, like, I was in high school playing Mario Kart in my friend's basement at the same age like it's possible that when you get the right people together who are all motivated to create something special that they can do it at any age and this feels like we're watching the beginnings of of like the next great anime director animator producer like these three are unstoppable I mean, of course, there could be things that stop them later. But <laughs> well, we'll the, have to see. The point is that when you're looking at them, the first thing they do isn't isn't bask in their glory. They critique their own work and think about all the ways that they can improve it. Not 40 minutes after turning in the finished product. It's just, it's incredible. And I want to end this discussion because I think you summed it up perfectly, so I don't know if I even need to say anything more about it. You mean it. when I was talking about sex? No, not that part. Oh. That was just <laughs> gratuitous. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I I liked this line from earlier in the film when Kanamori comes in at 4 a.m. and finds Asakusa asleep under her desk. And she says she's playing at being an animator because animators do this kind of thing. And she says, like, is it finished? And it's like, it's less about finishing and more the outcome of passion crashing against compromise and resignation. (laughs) And like, everything we do in life is like that. There's some things that I want to do with Okashina Podcast that I talked about in the top of the thing where... I don't know what form those are going to eventually take, right? But I know that I want to have something special and that I'm willing to work hard for it. But if I can't have a live band playing me <laughs> onto the stage at Otakon, I'm going to have to come up with something different that captures the same spirit, you know? And as an editor, I'm constantly compromising my own vision because as an editor, you feel like you can conjure anything, but you can only really work with what you've got. 
And that creativity in the in-between is really where an editor gets to shine. So like in between like what's actually there and the fantasy version that everyone sees in their head, that's where the editor lives. And it's our job to like get what's actually there as close as we can to the fantasy. I don't know if I've ever, like when I saw the movie, There Will Be Blood, the Paul Thomas Anderson movie, I was blown away (laughs) because I had never walked out of a film feeling like I had like reached some kind of nirvana before. And I don't know whether it was the music or the visuals or the combination of like the rhythm of the, or the cadence of the speech because uh, Daniel day Lewis has this very uh, particular way of speaking in that movie, which is kind of hypnotic. And the movie had a, had it had itself kind of a, an otherworldly feeling to it. And I walked out of it and I went to McDonald's for food afterward because I needed sustenance. And I felt like an alien who was traveling among earth. Like I knew some secret about the universe that nobody else knew. And I went and ordered McNuggets. And I was like, I'll have the chicken McNuggets, please. And it just hung there in the air. And it's like every word I spoke was perfect. I don't know how we got to a perfect delivery of I want some chicken McNuggets, please, from There Might Be Blood. Or There Might Be Blood. <laughs> Sorry. From There, there Will, Will Be, be blood. blood, yeah. Very different movies, I have to say. <laughs> I walked out of There Might Be Blood feeling a little uncomfortable about myself. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, but, yeah, the I I also thought this, this line is powerful. Um, because true it really rings back to the artist where the artist is continually striving and never satisfied with the final product you at some point have to release that that baby into the wild you have to be done with it yes and you know great artists do at least finish and move on to the next project um there may be artists out there who have created amazing things um but we'll never know because they've never released it. They've never considered it living up to their own standards. And that, that unfortunately isn't a great work of art. Or they were, or they were willing, unwilling to compromise. Look at Tim Burton's version of Superman. He, he had a vision for how he wanted it to be. Nicholas Cage was going to be Superman. Um, he had all these visuals that he was planning to put into the movie. He was going to, it was going to be his follow-up to Batman or Batman Returns, I forget which. But he could not mesh what he wanted to do with what the studio and the producers wanted from him. And so the project died, and it died a horrible death. He spent years on it, and it just it never materialized on. Imagine that. Like, And the question always comes to, are you willing to compromise and sacrifice your vision in order to get something made? And I think it's even more relevant in this sort of environment where just as you were talking about, you know, the when the the Rocky Horror Picture Show stuff, you know, your vision cannot succeed on its own. You must be part of a team and you do not have unlimited resources and time, even if you have virtually unlimited resources and time. Like there are still 
massive constraints that you will run up against and you must have a vision drive forward to it and shave off the rough edges where you can there's simply no other way to do it like there's just no way to have the perfect manifestation of that which you may see in your head a lot of my job on creative projects i've worked on is motivating people to do their jobs oftentimes without food oftentimes in unpleasant conditions oftentimes beyond the hours that they would normally wish to be involved in such a project and and you have to do it by providing just enough of everything they need in order to keep them motivated because ultimately everyone wants to work towards a good product but not everyone sees what it takes to get there and i've worn the hat of the artist and i've worn the hat of the kanamori the the producer and no matter what i did you know it all came down to can i make this thing and what can we actually do to get there and that was a hard fought lesson for me as i think it is for a lot of artists but that's all i have to say about this episode it was a good one these two episodes i should say there's 12 i i felt it was a good um a good cap on on like a a major chapter has been completed like we created the azoken we um had we and we have finally produced something right you can even if tomorrow the azoken fell apart they have a final product they can hang their hat on they had something that they did um i think that's incredibly meaningful really to to actually achieve and complete something and you know you talked about um in a previous uh podcast that we did you know what about your clubs you know what felt like this like when we produced a concert um when we Mm. produced our first cd as a group uh man that was meaningful right like no matter what else uh you can say about hey you know what'd you do in in your spare time what were your activities hey we made CDs. We actually produced and completed these things. You know, we we recorded in sound studios. We we did this. We have a final product. We can hand it to you, and you can consume the media. It was incredibly impactful to to have something like that. Um, if this had been the final episode, and it had only been four episodes or a short movie, it kind of would have been perfect too. Yeah, like I, it I could think have been. That's, I think it could have worked as well, but it does go on. And obviously now they have the budget. So we're going to see how they use that. And they obvi- they hinted during these episodes that there's going to be more collaboration between the different clubs, including the art club, which was too busy for this project. But um, the idea of working with more people and bringing in more talent and sort of showing us other aspects of the film, of, of how an anime film comes together... Um, will be sort of where we're going from here, right? Yep. So anyway, thank you, Don, again for uh, for joining me today. And uh, if you want to do the end part too, Don, I would really appreciate it because I'm like really tired. Not that. What? You got to say thank you for listening. Oh. Make sure to follow us on Twitter. Well... 
Let me just say... Give the people what they want. Audience, I'm so thankful that you were able to join us again for another episode oh, of the... You are, oh. you are so... In, <laughs> you are so unearnest. Oh, you are raining on my parade. Thank you very much. I am very earnest. I very much appreciate people tuning in to listen. And I hope that they're appreciating what we're saying here. God damn it. <laughs> Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Okashina Podcast. That's O-K-A-S-H-I-N-A Podcast. And spread the word about us to your own Nakamodomos. There's always room for more here. Uh, think, you know, we'd love to do the t-shirts and the stickers and We'd love to do the conventions, but we're still in the early going, and I, I really want to grow us a little more. If there's something you'd like us to cover on the show, or if you have any thoughts or suggestions, please drop us, you know, a, a tweet and tell us what, what you want to see or what you want to hear from us. Until next time, Dawn. Until that's next the part time. where we say the line. Oh, that's right. <gasps> Okashkuikoyo. No. Yes. No, it was good. Yay! It was good. I always wait for you to, to react. We'll never get it.